hello and welcome to this week's a photographic life. It's still chilly in the shed, so if my voice is a little trembly, please do not be surprised. Um, slightly strange kind of an episode, I think. The last episode of the year 2022. Um, and that's because, one, I'm going to talk about a camera doesn't get much stranger than that on this particular podcast, but also because it has a bit of a theme. I think that theme is kind of looking to the future. And I suppose in a sense that makes some kind of sense. But anyway, few things that I've looked at recently wanted to bring to your attention, maybe something to think about, something to talk about, or maybe something to completely ignore. But anyway, As I just said, we're going to start off talking about a camera. And I think what's interesting about this in particular camera is that it isn't coming from Fuji, Sony, Nikon or Canon. The the point, I should say, about this new camera, I'm going to give you all the information, most of which I have to say, I have no idea what it means whatsoever, but maybe you will. Um, But there's a point about this camera, which I'll get to at the end of talking about it, that I think is particularly interesting. So anyway, the French camera manufacturer Pixeye has announced a new 26 megapixel rangefinder camera with a 64-bit processing and an upgradable sensor block. The device features a 26 megapixel APS-C-sized BSI CMOS sensor, which has already scored 90% on the DXO Mark website. However, the headline feature for the camera is its 64-bit quad-core ARM Cortex A55 architecture. I hope you're still with me on this. Anyway, featuring a dual-core OpenCL 2.0 GPU with 768 threads and up to 7G pixels and dedicated NP and VPU cores. Maybe some of you out there understand what I'm saying. I'm completely honest. I don't know how many photographers will, but we'll keep going. The company claims that this processing allows the camera to produce not only full colour images, but also true monochrome raw ones as well. But how can the camera do this when it uses a traditional Bayer configuration using colour filters in front of the sensor? Well, the company states on its website, since the influence of the Bayer filter is well defined and we can infer the quantity of light that hit a defined pixel... This allows us to recreate the response of the underlying monochrome sensor. The result is a true monochrome image with a single plane of raw values and up to 16 bits of resolution. While the company admits there are some performance gains to be had by using a true monochrome setup like the Leica M10 uh, monochrome, uh, Pixi has decided that the gains are minimised by taking a computational approach to things. Now, I know that whenever I start to talk about computational photography, most photographers turn off or say it's got nothing to do with them. Here's further proof that it does. But here's the bit that I think is so interesting. The sensor on the camera has a native ISO of 160 with a maximum of 12800. 
As we mentioned, the sensor block is entirely upgradable, but it doesn't end there. The viewfinder and even the processor can be upgraded as and when technology moves on. And I've gone through a whole load of facts and figures there to get to that bit because I think that's what's so interesting. The idea of a camera as a box that we capture light with has been with us for well, since the beginning of photography. But here we have a company actually saying, buy the box and change the innards as technology moves forward. And I think as photographers, that's what we have to accept and be aware of. We do have to accept computational photography, but we do also have to understand that technology is moving forward in image capture. I don't know anybody who in the photographic world who will truly understand every single thing I've just said about all the data and so forth. At the end of the day, we want a camera in our hand that feels good and it makes the images that we want to make with it as easily and as well as possible. Anyway, that's my understanding, a photographic understanding of what a camera should be, not a scientist or an engineer's or a technician's. However, that idea of being to upgrade your camera rather than throw it away as technology moves forward, surely that's got to be a good thing. Whilst we're on the subject of good ideas, one of the things I talk a, a lot about, particularly with photographers uh, dealing with dyslexia and other neurodivergent issues, is the importance of engaging with narrative in whatever form you can. So if you are somebody who finds it difficult to read or to read books, then the audio book is a really good idea as, of course, is the podcast, uh, radio, television, film, wherever else you get your sense of narrative from. It's really difficult to be able to create photographic narrative if you can't engage with narrative in its different forms. So it's something I talk a lot about, and it's something which I embed in the course in which I teach and lead. So it was interesting uh, the other day to see um, a little article that said this, audiobooks aren't a new way to share information and entertain. But given that photography is an inherently visual medium, it's not common for photographers to share their tips and tricks via spoken word. Well, that's rather strange, actually, because there is absolutely no shortage of YouTube videos, podcasts and what have you for the uh, photographer who's looking for those kinds of technique-based kind of pieces of information. But anyway... Uh, photographers Daniel Lozano and Ross Hodinot are bucking this trend, evidently, and have released a new audiobook guide titled Landscape Photography for Mirrorless and Digital SLR Users, which is narrated by somebody called Rhys David. Um, so... Basically, the plan behind this is they're saying that, meanwhile, you know, some people struggle to digest information they read. Listening to an audiobook is a much easier and more convenient way to obtain the information uh, that the photographer needs. And they say, we wanted to create an exhaustive audiobook that landscape enthusiasts, particularly beginners, could listen to again and again to glean all the information they need to take better photographs. Well, you know, all good, all initiatives that help people out are obviously to be encouraged. Um, slightly strange, I think, that they're quite so dismissive of a number of other areas where those photographers are already engaging with the information they're talking about. 
I suppose my only concern is that it seems to be very much technique based. And I think photographers coming to photography for the first time need to be introduced to something more than just technique. But anyway, another good initiative, I think. This week, we welcome to the podcast to explain to him what photography means to him in under five minutes. A photographer who I have been aware of since the very early 1990s. And he may not be aware that I was aware, but I was. And I've always very much enjoyed his work. So great to have him on the podcast this week. As I said earlier, the last one of this year. Uh, Gautier de Blonde is the photographer, French photographer, renowned for his portraits of key international artists and a practice that is situated between reportage and documentary. Born and raised in France, he moved to London in 1991 to work as a photographer. He works closely with his artist subjects, photographing their working spaces and in doing so their contributions to the art world. The blonde subjects include Damien Hurst, Gilbert and George, Jeff Koons, Anthony Gormley and Ron Mueck. His book Atelier, published by Stiedel, captured 69 artist studios in Panorama, providing a glimpse behind the scenes to the source of artistic creation. And his book Artists, published by Tate Gallery in 1999, brought together a number of his artistic projects and portraits. Other projects have included True North in 2009, a series about Svalbard in the High Arctic, exhibited at the Gallery du Jour Agne B in Paris, and Still Life, Ron Mueck at Work in 2013. A documentary film commissioned by the Foundation Cartier and uh, de Blonde's photographs of the creation and installation into the Millennium Dome of Ron Mueck's sculpture, Boy won a press, uh, World Press Award, I should say, and they were published in 2001. His works have been exhibited in a number of museums and galleries, including Le Petit Palais in Paris, Tate Britain, and the National Portrait Gallery in London. I just about managed to get through that. I started photographing in the 80s in an art school in Belgium. Uh, we studied the work of photographers such as Henri Cartier-Bresson, Brassai, Kertesch. Some of the work which I did find fascinating were their collaboration with artists um, like Cartier-Bresson and Matisse, Brassai and Picasso, Kertesch and Mondrian. I was also uh, fascinated by the American photographers such as Paul Strand and Walker Evans and their work on the American landscape. I was also an avid reader of newspapers. I was dreaming to work with the international press. When I moved to London in 1991, my dream became true. I worked as a correspondent for the French newspapers Libération and Le Monde, and quickly, the Independent, the Guardian of the Financial Times started to commission me. In the 90s in the UK, it was the end of Thatcher and the rising of New Labour. The energy there was unique in Europe. Uh, the art world took advantage of that period and I took the opportunity to fulfill my passion for the arts. I didn't just work with artists, I lived with them. I collaborated on various projects and started to make my own work with artists as my subject. I still do today. I do admire artists as much as I do admire photographers. 
I respect many of them for their courage. Um, most of us have incurred large expenses in the pursuit of a tiny audiences. Finding that the wonder we'd hope to share is something few want to receive. Um, but nevertheless, photography is what keeps me alive. Looking for the next photograph. I guess uh, photography has always been a good excuse for me. An excuse to meet people I admire, uh, to share my time with them, to try to understand the process of creativity, to be part of that world, uh, to be fed. I always consider my work as a collaboration. I need the dialogue we can generate with artists. I do study their work, I read everything it is possible to read, I emerge myself in their world, I do adapt. But I never forget why I'm there. I never forget to look for the next photographs. I do fail a lot, but it doesn't matter. I'll have other opportunities. Photographies are so a good excuse to travel. I always travel for my photography. This is, this is the only way. I was lucky enough to travel around the world for the last 20 years. It is how I, I, I discovered the Svalbard in the Arctic. I've been traveling in the Arctic since 2005 and I go there almost every year. No other places before gave me that impression of facing um, what I would call a primary landscape untouched by the civilization. Walking on the ice in the Svalbard is like starting from zero. You discover how fragile is our planet. Wonderful, but fragile. So I spend my time between artist studios and the Arctic, which is to me a luxury. I do commercial work to finance, uh, to finance my projects, but I'm very lucky. As I said before, I consider photography to be the best excuse to lead my life, um, to meet people I admire and to travel. It is just an excuse, but this is the best one I could find. Thank you, Gautier, for your contribution this week. Looking back, looking forward, making work, contributions, reading, learning the luckiness of doing what we do. Everything we talk about there on this podcast in one contribution. If you're not aware of his work, as I say every week, make sure you check it out. I find it inspiring and I hope you do too. I promised you at the beginning of this episode that we'd be looking to the future. And I didn't admit, actually, that most of the things in the future I don't seem to really understand. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's why I kind of look into these things and try and read about them and try and get a little bit of uh, knowledge. But anyway, I saw uh, something else about the future, but actually the present as well. That computational thing yet again. But don't turn off. I hope you're going to find this interesting. An article I saw recently in the New Yorker magazine titled, How is everyone making those AI selfies? Images generated with Lenser AI are all over social media, but at what cost? By uh, Madison Malone Kircher and Callie Holterman. Well, there's a few extracts here I'm just going to read from the article. You may be aware that AI and AI portraits in particular are starting to get a little bit of traction and discussion. So it seems to me a good time to dip, just kind of dip um, our foot in that particular water. So here we go. It says this. Have you noticed that many of your friends are suddenly fairy princesses or space travellers? Well, I hope you have if, if you have. Is your Instagram feed overrun with Renaissance-style paintings of people who were definitely born in the 90s? 
If so, you are entitled to an explanation of what exactly is going on here. In the past week, uh, when the article was written, users have flocked to Lenser AI, an app that uses your selfies and artificial intelligence to create portraits in a variety of styles. Created by the company Prisma Labs, the app is generating images and controversy. Now, I know that separate from this article, there's a lot of controversy around this particular company. You might like to look at that separately. But anyway, Lenta takes your selfies, studies them, and churns out original computer-generated portraits of you or anyone whose photos you feed into it. Uh, It's not free. You've got to pay. Right now, you get 50 avatars, 10 images in five styles, for $3.99 during a one-week trial period. For $35.99, you can subscribe to Lenta AI for the year which gets you a 51% discount on future avatars. Well, I have to say, I'm not sure how many avatars anyone needs, but let's move on. Um, It's expensive, the article says, but we made it as affordable, I should say the company said, uh, but we made it as affordable as possible. Fair warning, says the article, prices have been fluctuating as the app has gotten more and more popular and may have changed since this article was published and since I'm reading it to you. So how does it work? Well, it works through a thing called stable diffusion that uses image prompts such as selfies and text prompts to generate the images. Stable Diversion was trained on the creations of many artists who did not explicitly consent to the use of their work for Prisma Lab's profit. Um, The key to this here is that this is taking lots of information and then it's applying it to what you have and then using what you have to add to its information. Uh, A quote here from somebody called uh, Jonathan Lamb, who's a storyboard artist, says, uh, to a lot of people having our art stolen, they don't view, view it as anything personal, like, oh, well, you know, it's just a style. You can't copyright a style. But I would argue that for us, our style is actually our identity. It's it's what sets us apart from each other. It's what makes us marketable to clients. And I think for me, that's where this is important to photographers. These digital artists who've been using found photography for so long are suddenly finding their work being used and they're not so keen on it. Maybe the whole NFT teams out there, people reusing other people's work, might like to think about, about that as they go forward. Suddenly, it's not so funny when it's done to you. Anyway, I'm certainly not going to be having an avatar uh, made of me as a princess, a superhero, or or anything else, to be honest with you. That's for sure. What I am going to do, though, is take care.